So good to have you here on Memorial Day weekend of all weekends. Uh, you may be surprised that I'm up here because we are taking a break, I promise. So we've been like telling you for the last several weeks, Alex and I are taking a break. We are. Uh, this summer, we are actually doing a minor profit series. So we're going to take one Sunday every single week, and we're going to focus in on one of the 12 different minor profits. And 12 minor profits exist, so we're going to do that for 12 Sundays, but we've got nine different communicators from this church body that are each going to be taking one of those minor prophets. We were from Justin last week. We're going to hear from Corbin this coming week. We've got Alicia. We've got Sam Weaver. We've got Joe Gonzalez. We've got Amanda. We've got Brad. We've got maybe Bryce. We're working on getting him scheduled for one at the end of the summer. Welcome to church planning. Uh, and maybe somebody else that I forgot. Did I forget anybody else? Hopefully I didn't. If I did, I love you. Um, but all of that being said, I'm so excited to get to learn from you all and for Alex and I to take a break. So I promise you this is the last Sunday that I am preaching until August. Everybody is good at holding me to that because they're like, Cassie, Alex, rest, right? And that is one of the main reasons why we have this as part of our regular routine and rhythm is so that Alex and I can have a bit of a break, uh, take some time to reset, creativity, all those fun things that happen when you're not constantly producing. But there are a few of the reasons we do this, and I want to just quickly highlight them so that you understand uh, why we have so many wonder people from this community preaching this summer. First of all, it's not because we don't like you guys or we don't like preaching. We actually love you guys, and we actually do really love preaching, but rather we recognize there are a lot of incredible people in this body who have gifts of preaching and teaching, and we would be remiss as leaders if we did not let those individuals have a moment to continue to grow and learn in those skills. In fact, Alex and I very much see what we traditionally think as this platform, as a training ground for future leaders and future pastors down the road. So that's one reason we do it. The other reason, and this is extremely pertinent actually to my sermon today, is that it keeps us from building this church on Alex and I's personalities. We are not the only or the most important voices in this room. This church is not great because Cassie and Alex talk good. It's not why you should come to this church. This church is great because we are in an incredible neighborhood and a city that each and every one of us have been called to. This church is great because each of you are an arm, a leg, a hand, a foot, a neck, a head that's part of this church that we call the body. And so it's another reason why every single year we take some time and some space to say, hey, remember, <laughs> we're not the only people in this this room. We're not the most important voices. There are lots of important voices here, and we're excited to share them with you. And so along that thinking, today I want to open by talking a little bit about celebrity worship syndrome. Celebrity worship syndrome. Uh, this is not made up, I promise. You can actually look it up. It is a term that psychologists and researchers have given for this particular phenomenon in society. And 
since the early 2000s, we have seen a significant rise in the celebrity worship syndrome, right? And this should come as no surprise to many of us because we've grown up in the age of Paris Hilton, right? Of social media influencers, of the internet, of the Kardashians. Celebrity worship exists all around us. And although it may not be harmful to admire somebody or maybe to have a minor celebrity crush, researchers and scientists have actually shown that worship of a famous person is really harmful to your mental health. It can lead to things like depression, anxiety, dissociation, and body image concerns. This is probably part of the reason the CDC just came out this week stating that social media is a danger to adolescents, can cause extreme mental health illness. And although you may be thinking, you know, I don't know if this really replies to me. I don't like have a picture of Zac Efron still in my bedroom, right? I did. Um, <laughs> yeah, speak for myself. Uh, this actually is extremely prevalent. In 2022, you may be actually affected by this. A report uh, from the Mental Health Million Project, it's a nonprofit organization, found that those between the ages of 18 through 24 have become fixated with one or more celebrities at, get this, 12 times the rate of their parents' generation. 12 times the rate of your parents' generation. And this may not manifest itself in like the teenage girl Zac Efron type of thing, but it probably does in the people that you follow on Instagram, on TikTok, or Facebook. Is that still a thing? I don't even know. And despite researchers' concerns, despite these warnings, we continue to perpetuate this culture of celebrity worship. And this has not escaped the church by any means. Consistently, over and over again, we see the elevation and the rise of the celebrity pastor and the celebrity worship leader over and over again. And I'm here to tell you today that this is actually very problematic. And there are a lot of reasons why. I'm not going to get into all of them, but I want to highlight just a few. The first reason why this is really problematic is because although Jesus was well-known, he actively worked to reject fame and monetary gain. And then he told his disciples to do the same. Just a few little examples here. Very famous verse, Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Or in Matthew chapter 5, we see Jesus list this long list of beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor and blessed are the meek. Or we see him time and time again throughout all the gospels, look at someone he has healed and say, go and tell no one. That does not seem like a celebrity pastor's term of phrase, right? Go and tell everyone, post it on social media. You've been healed. Jesus actually, in response to somebody saying, hey, I want to follow you, says this in Luke chapter 9, verse 58. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay your head, his head. In other words, yeah, sure, you can follow me, but we're not going to stay in the best hotels. We may not have really great accommodations. In fact, I'm actually houseless, and we may be intense a lot of the time. Are you sure you want to follow me? You're not going to get perks. 
Or in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48, we see the disciples arguing with one another and asking, who is the greatest? Who's the most famous among us? And Jesus takes a little child and he uses this child as a sermon or a lesson illustration. And he says, whoever welcomes the little child or the least of these is welcoming me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. If our aim in life is to become like Jesus and to do what he did, celebrity culture appears to be in opposition to his way of living. Second reason why this culture is problematic is because oftentimes we end up relying on these figures, these celebrity pastors, these celebrity worship leaders for our spiritual growth. And although it's not wrong to listen to a podcast by another preacher, I literally do it all the time. It is wrong when that is your only time with God. Where you, the only time you spend in faith or communion with God is listening to somebody else's interpretation of the scripture. Third reason why this is problematic is because celebrity pastor culture always leads to disappointment. It doesn't matter how great the person may appear to be, any human being that is lifted up onto a pedestal will inevitably disappoint you. It's as the phrase goes, never meet your heroes, right? And lastly, this culture is problematic because it creates a reality of haves and have-nots. A people that are much greater and much better and then us just average Joe individuals that sit over here. And this particular idea actually really influences the way that we read scripture. We look at figures like Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Deborah, Ruth, Esther, Peter, Mary, mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Paul, Barnabas, and even the early church. And we think, wow, they're amazing. They're incredible. I could never be like that. They have something I don't. And then in the real world, this translates into us elevating the clergy, pastors, priests, teachers above everyday, ordinary Jesus followers. And when we look at the scriptures, we see, oh, wait, that cannot be right. In fact, the New Testament professes that we are a community of priests. That each and every one of you can be called pastor. It professes and draws out this community in which ordinary moments, ordinary people, those working in an office setting, those with little kids, those moments, those people can be infused by the power of God. And that is the good news. That's the news of Pentecost, actually, the day that we are celebrating today in the church calendar. And that is also the message of the prophet Joel. 
Joel says, God is inviting us everyday ordinary people, not the celebrity, not the famous, not the few, but the many to join him in renewing the world. You are extraordinary. You are the Moses of today. You are the Mary Magdalene. You are the Peter that preached the sermon on Pentecost. That's you. And that is the message that we're going to talk about today. A few things to keep in mind as we've been going through this minor prophet sermon series, just a few things like, hey, if I walk away with anything, this is what I need to know about the minor prophets. The first one is this, got to make sure that we define what a prophet is, right? So what is a prophet? The prophets were messengers sent by God to call the people of God back to him. Oftentimes, we see this in the scriptures over and over again, the people of God break their relationship with him, right? And the prophets come to say, hey, hello, you messed up. That's why you're miserable. Come back to God. That is who the prophets are and the message they give, which leads us to our second point, the covenant defined. Oftentimes in the minor prophets, you see this covenantal language being used. It's a pretty foreign word within our current context, but the easiest way of thinking about it is a set of guidelines to have like a good relationship. In communication, um, I'm a communications professor at UMKC on the side. I teach public speaking, a lot of fun. But in communication, there's actually this concept called relational maintenance. And we do this all the time, explicitly or implicitly, where we create basically rules to maintain our relationship. That's exactly what a covenant is. It's like a set of rules, relational maintenance, to maintain the Israelites' relationship with God. And oftentimes, over and over again, we see this covenant broken time and time again, and then there is fallout from this broken relationship. In communication, when relational maintenance is broken, when your rules are broken, there is often conflict. That's what we see time and time again. And lastly, there's actually some good news, though, right? When we think about the prophets, we tend to think gloom, doom, despair, right? Everything's going wrong. But the point of the prophets is actually to give the people hope. It's to remind them that they serve and love a God who does not just leave them in their brokenness, but restores them into whole and right relationship with him. And the prophets help the people learn what it's like to live in this new covenant relationship, this new way of living, this new kingdom. And so with that in mind, I want to talk through a few very unique things about the book of Joel. The book of Joel is obviously written by the prophet Joel. Don't you love how they do that? Makes it super easy, right? Very easy to remember. Uh, and there are a few very interesting things about Joel that we don't see in the other minor prophets. And the first one is this. Joel is one of the only minor prophets where we have absolutely no confirmed ideas to where it occurs. We can guess. There's lots of really great guesses, but we don't know for sure. And so I think it would be very helpful to do a little history lesson to help us learn where we might see Joel and these events play out. So the time of the prophets, it exists after what um, most of us know is like those big events in the Old Testament, right? So when we think of the Old Testament, a lot of us think of creation, right? Noah, we think of Abraham, we think of Exodus, okay? Minor prophets, all the prophets occur 
after that, all of those major events. And at this point in history, okay, we see a few things happened. The Israelites have already entered the promised land, but they have disobeyed a lot. They've had some judges, a.k.a. Book of Judges. They didn't like those judges very much. So then they begged God for kings, a.k.a. Book of Kings, okay? But then they didn't like the kings so much. And then those kings actually led them to be a divided nation. And so we see these people fractured into the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And this is about where half of the prophets exist in this time period that I just described. And then we see another time period take place because as a result of their fraction, so they're fractioning into Israel and Judah, we see them taken over by the big bad Babylon, okay? You can think of this as a new Egypt, and these people are forced to live in subjugation in Babylon for years, But the good news is God rescues them, brings them back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild Jerusalem. This is Ezra and Nehemiah's time period, okay? So rebuilding Jerusalem. But, spoiler alert, they mess up again, (laughs) and Jerusalem falls. And that's where we find ourselves actually in the New Testament, And scholars, their best guess is that Joel is occurring sometime after Ezra and Nehemiah have rebuilt Jerusalem and as it is slowly being destroyed again. And this is important because it tells us a little bit about the prophet Joel himself. More on this in a second. Second thing to note is that Joel, because of this most likely time period where he's at, actually references a ton of the other minor prophets in Exodus itself. So he references Obadiah, Amos, Nahum, Zephaniah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi. So we know he has a good understanding of Israel's history and what has happened. And then thirdly, he never accuses Israel of a particular sin, which is strange because almost all of the prophets do this. We saw this actually happen last week, right? Justin preached on Hosea and the main sin in Hosea is adultery, right? So some, when the Israelites are basically worshiping another God that is not Yahweh, We see the sin of adultery being talked about in Hosea, but we don't see anything like that with Joel. And scholars theorize, they assume it's because like him, you've read all of those prophets that I just mentioned. You've read Exodus, and basically Joel is saying, Israel's a bit of a screw-up, so I don't need to like dig up all of their garbage and their baggage. I don't need to do that. You know you know. It's like that sibling that like always does the wrong thing. It's like, I don't need to tell you about their stuff. You know, they, they did a thing again, right? It's basically what Joel is telling us here, right? And so Joel, as this learned, old, wise man who's able to look back on all of this history and see Israel time and time again mess up over and over and over again, but then time and time again see God rescue them over and over and over again, he has a bit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding about the nature of human beings, but also the nature of God. And this is why Joel teaches us that everyday ordinary people, even those that screw up time and time again, can join God in the renewal of the world. And he does this through three particular uh, things. And we're going to talk through those today. We're going to analyze Joel through those three ideas. The first one is changing our lives, not just our clothes. 
coming back to God again and again, and lastly, receiving his spirit. So everyday ordinary people, we can join God in the renewal of the world if we do these things, if we change our life, just not our clothes, if we come back to God again and again, and if we receive his spirit. So first one, changing our life, not just our clothes. So the book of Joel begins by poetically recounting this plague of locusts. And he actually references Exodus. You can think of the plague of locusts that happens in Egypt. But he says, instead of it happening to the Egyptian people, it's actually happening to Israel. And because of this plague, Joel actually calls on the people to repent and pray. And then he does so himself. And implicit in this call to repentance is an acknowledgement that somehow Israel's sin and rebellion has brought on this devastation, that somehow their sin has caused this disaster. Cue theological discomfort. Anybody? This is one of those passages or those ideas that if I'm being really honest makes me so uncomfortable. The idea that my sin or my rebellion, making a mistake could bring on a disaster feels very wrong. I usually think one of the following things, surely my actions weren't that bad, or surely my actions don't deserve that consequence. And there is something to this idea, and I'm going to get there in a little bit, so just hold on with me. That being said, this approach to sin, generally speaking is a bit naive because there are always consequences to our actions, both good and bad. And they're evident not just in the scriptures, but in real world examples. I want to give you a few. We have neglect and perverted our environment. That is why we are experiencing barren lands, drought-filled lands, and a warming climate. When you abuse substances, people can forgive you for that abuse, but that does not change the hurt that is felt. Doesn't change the relational brokenness or the decaying health that you may experience in old age. Inactivity and poor diet can cause stroke and heart attack. If I don't change the way I eat... My body may grow old and it may fail me. This is why we frequently define sin as disordered desires. This idea that we think, what we think we want, we think it will bring us happiness. When in reality, what we really think we want is not what we want at all. It brings disaster in death. I think in a moment that I just want that substance again. I crave it. I think it will make me happier, but in the long term, I realize it doesn't. I think that, oh, you know, just it's okay. We can continue to act like we normally have. We don't need to work to recycle things regularly, or I don't need to work with other people to help change the world and our environment. It'll be fine, whatever. And we continue to see rising temperatures, right? All of our actions do have consequences. It's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. He says, A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. 
See, Joel looks at the Israelites and he says, you have continued to reap destruction. Your rebellion, your worship of other gods, your sexual depravity, your murderous acts, your hypocrisy has consequences. And Joel sees this play out time and time again through history. But lest Israel or we despair in the consequences of our actions or a cycle of sin, we see how God responds to Israelite and Joel's repentance in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. God says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Or as Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message, come back to me and really mean it. Come fasting and weeping, sorry for your sins. Change your life, not just your clothes. Joel says sin is inevitable, yes. Your actions will hurt other people and the world around you. But come back to me and really mean it. Understand the consequences of your actions and want a better life and world. Help me build this world, not destroy it. In the poetic words of Joel, change your life, not just your clothes. Now, I want to give just a brief side note before we move on. I want to be very clear. I am not saying natural disasters, illness, epidemics, or poverty are the result of someone's personal sin. You are not sick because there's some secret hidden sin in your life. This is a very painful and extremely distorted theology. It should be thoroughly debunked in the light of Scripture and Jesus' fulfillment of it. I think sometimes we can forget that there is a very real enemy out there whose goal is end destruction and death. There are systematic injustices that exist byproducts of historical sin that still have effects on our life today. And Jesus actually tells us in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that in this world, if we follow him, we will experience suffering. We will have trouble. Because there is an enemy out there who does seek to destroy us. There's a world out there who does not align with Jesus and his message of love. So to be very clear, all disaster and suffering is not the result of personal sin. But that doesn't change the fact that some of it is. That our actions, even well-meaning at times, have consequences. Joel teaches us that even everyday ordinary people can join God in renewing the world. If we change our life, not just our clothes, if we understand that our actions actually have internal significance and we work to help God build the world best we can. But thankfully, Joel also teaches us that we can come back to God again 
and again. In response to Israel's repentance, Joel describes a God who says it's never too late to come back. Joel actually narrates God's response in chapter 2 saying, come back to God, your God. This is the message paraphrase. And here's why. God is kind and merciful. He takes a deep breath and puts up with a lot. This most patient God, extravagant in love, always ready to cancel catastrophe, who knows, Joel says. Maybe he'll do it now. Maybe he'll turn around and show pity. Maybe when all said and done, there'll be blessings full and robust from your God. Although beautiful, this narration of God's loving response may sound very foreign to some of us. In response to a disaster, to the consequences of our actions, to our own sin, to the moment where like, why do we do the things that we do? We may think God is absent. He's not here. God must be really angry at me. Or maybe God's playing favorites and I am not his favorite. Or God holds grudges for a long time and now I'm paying for it. But instead, Joel says something very different. Joel says God is slow to anger, gracious and merciful, abounding in love. Although sin may be disastrous, although we may at times change our clothes instead of our lives, it's never too late to come back again and again. And Joel knows this, remember, because he's seen it happen time and time again. He looks at the other prophets. He looks at the Israelites' people rebellion over and over again and doesn't just see their pattern, but he sees God's pattern of love and mercy and forgiveness over and over again. Eugene Peterson actually says this. He says, it's the task of the prophet to stand up in such moments of catastrophe and clarify who God is and how he acts. Joel is clarifying here who God is and how he acts. And he says he is one of love, mercy, and forgiveness. Similarly, we can do the same thing. We can look throughout all of scripture and clarify who God is and how he acts. Exodus chapter 34, Moses encounters God and says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Psalm chapter 108, David cries out and says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people. I will sing your praise among the nations. Why? For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. This is what John talks about in his gospel in chapter four. He says, God is love. In this love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We may live through love. 
We can join God in the renewal of our world, even in those moments when we don't change our lives and instead are closed because we can come back to God again and again. So as ordinary people, we endeavor to change our lives. We endeavor to come back to God again and again. And lastly, we receive the Spirit. You know, surprisingly, even with its locust rebellion and repentance, Joel is a book of hope, a very hopeful book, in fact. And this hope is found in a promise. Joel says God's presence will not just return and fill the temple, but he says in the future, God's presence will not have to exist in a temple, but can fill you. It can transform and empower you. You can receive the Spirit and renew the world with God. And we first see this promise in Joel fulfilled in the day known as Pentecost or the pouring out of the Spirit on the disciples. Again, Pentecost Sunday, timing, so good. It's like we planned it because we did. A little bit of a background just kind of on Pentecost Sunday because Peter actually quotes that scripture we read earlier, Joel. It talks about your young man, young men, your old men, visions, prophesying, all of those things. He actually quotes that from Joel. So a little bit of a background on this moment that leads us to Pentecost. So Jesus, he's leaving this earth. Before he ascends, he looks at his disciples and he says, go and wait in Jerusalem and I will send you my spirit or my helper. And so the disciples go to Jerusalem. They're fasting, they're praying, and they're waiting for whatever this is that Jesus said was going to come. And as they wait on the 10th day, the Holy Spirit descends upon them, and there is extreme power. There's lots of Israelites that are in town, uh, lots of different people from all over the region that are in town who speak many different languages for a feast, and they come to this place where the disciples have received the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden they hear the disciples speaking in their own language which is a miracle because the disciples didn't know how to speak in all of their languages. But it was being heard because of the power of the Spirit. And as a result of that day, we see thousands of people come to know Jesus. So as the Holy Spirit is descending and everyone's trying to figure out what's happening, why are we hearing these different languages, what's going on, Peter gets up and he gives one of the most famous sermons and he actually quotes Joel 2 and he says this, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male and female servants. Peter is saying here, hey, do you remember that promise from Joel? Do you remember how he said that his, the presence of God did not need to exist in the temple, but could exist in you? That day is today. That's why you're experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, because he has come. And the real beauty of this promise lies in this long list of different people that he gives. 
in its inclusivity. Joel and Peter, through Peter's quotation of Joel, seems to be highlighting what many would perceive in that time period as the politically uncomfortable or the lessers of society. He says, women, children, elderly, the young, those enslaved, yes, even them too can experience the power of God's presence. There is no celebrity and the ordinary people here. You all can receive the power of my spirit. We, everyday, ordinary people can help God in the rebuilding of this world because we have received God's spirit. We no longer need to rely on Moses or the prophets to mediate between us and God. We do not have to have a celebrity or a pastor or a special person to do great things. All we have to do is say, I am willing and open. Come, Holy Spirit, and we are empowered to do the extraordinary. And we actually see this take place in the book of Acts time and time again, and this is why we see the church explode. Joel goes on to say in chapter 3 that with us, everyday ordinary people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, God will vanquish evil and he will bring about a new creation. And you Get to help with that. Worship team, if you want to go ahead and join me. You know, I think if many of us were being honest, we really don't think we're capable of extraordinary things. I remember as a college student sitting in the church that I was attending at the time and the pastor giving a sermon, I think, oh yeah, that's great. You can do that, but I don't think I can. We hear stories about a person coming to know Jesus or someone helping a neighbor in need or a friend receiving healing and thinking, wow, that's great, but I couldn't do that. Maybe that's for the celebrity. Maybe that's for the pastor. Maybe that's for the microchurch leader. Maybe that's for the super volunteer at church. But like I help out maybe once a month, you know, in my attendance. Sometimes I'm there, you know, twice a month. I don't know that I can do that. That's not for me. But the prophet Joel outlines a very different way of living. He says God's invitation is for everyday, ordinary people to join him in the renewal of the world. That miraculous works, the sharing of the gospel, the bringing of justice, healing is not just for the few called, but it is for the many, it is for you. And so in response to Joel's message today, I want to provide just a few suggestions for how us just everyday ordinary people can get to this place where we really can feel empowered to bring about good in our world. And the first suggestion is this. Some of us really need to work on changing our lives, not just our clothes. Your actions matter. They mean something to God. And he's calling you to real and true repentance, a completely different way of living. He says, really mean it this time and return to God, right? 
Help me build this world. Don't tear it down. And yes, we will mess up. That is inevitable. But he simply calls us to take our actions seriously. To say the things that you do on the day to day have an eternal significance. You can hurt people or you can build them up. Change your life, not just your clothes. Suggestion number two is this. Some of us need to really work on knowing who God is. When you think of God, is he angry? Is he vengeful? Does he hold a grudge when you mess up? Does he keep a score or a record of wrongs? Does he have a really long list? If so, it may be time to relearn him. To read that passage in Joel again. God's merciful and gracious, abounding in love. To read the book of Romans written by a man who messed up a lot. I think we forget Paul murdered people, a lot of people. He's the man that writes the book of Romans, one that's an invitation into grace and love over and over and over again. Maybe you need to read John 4, God is love. Do not let inferiority or your fear of God keep you from being used by him to do the extraordinary. To know God is to come back to him again and again. Alex and I come back to God again and again. We all come back to God again and again. To know him is to do so. Suggestion number three is this. Some of us need to be open and receptive to the leading of the Spirit. For some of us, it's simply time to wake up and to be aware to pay attention to those nudgings or those promptings that you may have to talk to a coworker or a neighbor, to mow that neighbor's lawn, as Justin was talking about a few weeks ago, right? To say, oh, you know what? I'm gonna ask my coworker if they wanna go out to lunch. I know they've been having a hard time. I'm gonna listen and ask them what's going on. It's the bravery and the courage to ask if you can pray for someone in a moment where you know you need to. Some of us need to just simply practice that prayer that Alex instructed us in a few weeks ago. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, when I wake. Come, Holy Spirit, as I drop off the kids. Come, Holy Spirit, as I walk into work. Come, Holy Spirit, as I enter this Zoom waiting room. Come, Holy Spirit. We're paraphrasing the prophet Joel. Come, Holy Spirit, and help me bring about your new creation, your new world, your new Eden. I'm going to help you build that. How can I do it? It's through these simple suggestions. Changing our lives, not just our clothes. 
learning who God is and figuring out how we come back to him again and again and again and receiving the Holy Spirit that I really do believe everyday ordinary people, you and me can renew this world with God. You can do the extraordinary. You can do what the prophets did, what Moses did, what the early church did. That's for you. And that's the message of Joel. Let's pray. God, we uh, come before you today. Whether it's with laissez-faire attitudes, inferiority, just the mundane, boring, annoyingness of everyday life. And our ask of you today is God, use us. In our brokenness, in our ordinariness, I may not feel skilled. I may not feel like I possess it all. But God, you tell me that I can be used. And Lord, may I. It's that old song, use me and I will go. Lord, use every single one of us. That we may go into this world not bringing about its destruction or tearing it down, but building it up. Bringing your kingdom here to earth. We praise you, Jesus. We thank you that you provided a new way of living. That you said there's no one that can't receive my spirit. Every one of you chosen and loved and capable to do my work. Help us simply to do it. In your name we pray. Amen. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.